So, um, by way of introduction, again, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here, and I do have a stutter, so just want to um, make sure that you all know that uh, beforehand, so you know what it is. And um, again, if you're new, I just want to say welcome. We're, we're very, very um, glad that you're here, and it's good to uh, good to see you all. We, um, we actually have something kind of fun, just so you know, at the end of our time here together, we're going to actually hear from a couple of the teachers here at the school. Um, they've actually de- de- decided to, to come here and to join us today, so that's, so that's been very fun. But it was just a really, really cool time um, yesterday doing work here at the school, and uh, the principal and the vice principal have actually both um, sent, me, sent me some uh, emails and are very excited. And um, I know some others from our church were doing another event um, in the downtown area, a significant event to bless Tucson, and that went incredibly well. Also, I got to go over there and see that, and they painted some murals and did some other things. So that was was very cool, just to see all that God's doing around here that we get to be a part of. So um, we're going to get into it pretty quickly in Mark. So if you'll go ahead and turn with me in Mark chapter 3, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it up here on the screen, but I'd encourage you to, to um, hold your hand up and somebody will get you one. So we want to make sure everybody has a Bible that they can read along with and um, you know underline stuff. And if you don't own a Bible... You do now. Okay, this is our gift to you. We want to make sure you have one. So, again, if you don't own a Bible, please keep this. And si necesitas en español, tenemos. So, if you prefer a Bible in Spanish, we have that as well. Just um, indicate that and we'll get you one in Spanish. So, um, we want to make sure that, uh, that everyone has one that they can read and um, understand. And while that's, um, those are being handed out and stuff, let me just kind of remind us where we are. Okay, let's just get kind of oriented as we walk through Mark chapter 3 here, the end of chapter 3. And um, we're in an, in an interaction that Jesus has with some people. It's really important where we, um, that we know where we're at in the story. Because what we've seen from the very beginning is that the author here, Mark, wants to make it abundantly clear who Jesus is, his identity, and what he's doing, his identity and his purpose. And we're, we're told that Jesus is God, that he's God the Son, and that he's come to usher in the kingdom of God, that he's, he's, he's announcing the good news that, that God's kingdom is coming. And he says, um, he, he, he calls for all people to repent to turn away from their sins and turn toward God and to confess faith and to follow Jesus. And he's, he's calling people to follow him. But what we see time and time again is that every human, every person that interacts with Jesus doesn't get it, doesn't see who he is and is like, wait, what? I don't get it. And, and then he says, no, come and follow me. I am God, the son, and I'm bringing in my kingdom. Come and follow me. And he's calling for people to be true followers of his. And time and time again, people don't get it. And the author intentionally writes it this way so that you and I can respond to the invitation to follow Jesus. And so I want to ask you, are you a Christian? Would you call yourself a Christian? Would you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus? The words that we're going to be looking at today, um, Christian, and then more specifically, disciple, mean a follower, a follower of Jesus. And according to statistics, about 77% of America would say, yeah, yeah, that's me. 
I'm a Christian. I'm a, a, a Catholic or a Protestant follower of Jesus. About 77% of America would say, yeah, that's, that's me. If asked kind of, kind of on, a, on a checklist or something, they would mark that. I'm a Christian. But of those 77%, about somewhere less than 30% really do anything with that. Like it, it doesn't really impact their life on a consistent basis. But still, whether it's through familial or cultural um, involvement or association, most of us would still say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian or a follower of Jesus or a disciple. But the question that we're going to be faced with as we, as, we, as we look at this in the words of Jesus is to show that there's a dramatic difference between being a true disciple and a false disciple. Between being a true follower of Jesus and a false disciple of Jesus. And what we'll see that even some of the people really close to him, even some of the people that again, through, through, through family relationship or through cultural association, it would seem to make sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And he has some harsh words and warnings to show that we reject Jesus, that we prove to be false disciples in overt, blatant ways, as well as in some really um, may, maybe smaller ways or some harder to identify ways. But, but at the same, at the end of the day, we reject Jesus all the same, whether it's blatant and overt or, or, or subtle. That, 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 that to be a true follower of Jesus and a, and a false disciple is the ultimate question. And so some here, I, I suspect, would say, no, I'm not a Christian. That's not me. I don't follow Jesus. That's not who I, uh, I associate with. I, or or would, would say, I don't know, right? And, and, and if that's you, I just want to say, I'm really, really glad you're here. Uh, this is a safe place to come and to say that and to, and to say, I, I'm not really sure where I'm at in all this. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And, and, and again, I'm really, really glad you're here. And, 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 and again, um, I, I just want to make it known that, that, that um, the, the question, though, that we're going to be asking, because it's the question that Jesus is asking time and time again, is will you follow him? Who is he and how do you respond to him? But, but for a lot of others, I suspect, again, according to statistics, about 77%, we'd just say, yeah, yeah, of course, I'm a Christian. My family or my, or my culture or something says I'm a Christian. But, but I'd ask you to consider, are you a true follower of Christ? Or are you a false disciple? Because the difference is enormous. The difference is important. And, and, and we can't just subtly think that because of our familial or cultural associations, it's a given. Okay, so that's where we're going to be. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. I'm going to pray that God would lead us through this time. Because um, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm confident that in this time we will both be humbled and lifted up. That as always, as we're faced with the person and work of Jesus, we are um, hopefully rightly convicted and encouraged. And that comes through the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask him to lead us through our time right now. Okay, so with that, let me pray and then we'll go ahead and pick up in verse 20. Lord, I do pray for you to lead us through this time. 
Lord Jesus, I don't um, think that as we gather here, this isn't just a Sunday ritual that we do, and it's kind of I'm up here to entertain or to, you know, get excited and to try to convince anyone of anything. Lord, I trust that as we come before your perfect word, that you, Lord Jesus, are indeed revealing yourself to us, and you are calling us to respond to you. You're saying, will you follow me? As a true disciple. Or do you reject me? Whether overtly or subtly. Lord I pray that we would all be faced with that question. And I pray and I trust. That you God the Holy Spirit will lead us through this time. I pray that you will, you will open our hearts and our ears and our eyes. Because I know unless you do that. My words are futile. So Lord I pray that you will get me out of the way and that you will speak to us, keep me from error and reveal yourself to us through your perfect word. And we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, as we start here, I want to say something real quick before we dive into verse 20. We're about to have a sandwich today. Okay, so get ready. We're going to have a sandwich together. Um, I don't know how you feel about sandwiches. Some people speak about them negatively. I love sandwiches. Like bread was a good thing, right? You can put whatever you want between it and it's a good thing. And there's a literary um, approach to writing that's called sandwiching. It's called the sandwich approach. And specifically today, we get a Markin sandwich. Actually, they're going to have it up here. So I don't know if you knew you were going to have a Markin sandwich when you came here today, but you are. So, um... We're going to have a Markin sandwich, and what a Markin sandwich is, is that the author, Mark, specifically uses a strategy to reveal a specific point. And so we'll see a bunch of these as we continue to walk through Mark. This will happen, so I just wanted to make sure you know it on the front end, that what he does is he'll use two shorter stories, in this case, Mark 3, 20 and 21, and then again down um, Mark 3, verses um, 31, that's supposed to be through 35, and that, um, and that will show us those, those two stories have to do with his family. And then there's a longer story in the center that he's interacting with some religious authorities, and he's making one point, and again, the overwhelming, abundant point that is being made is that there is a significant difference between being a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus, and a false disciple. And we make a lot of assumptions that make that difference a little more cloudy, a little more blurry. And the author, Mark, wants to make it abundantly clear through these different stories. Okay, So that's what we're going to be doing. So we're going to pick up in the first slice of bread there, um, rye, marble, you take your pick. But um, Mark 3, 20 and 21, we're going to read the first part. So I just wanted to make sure you know that kind of as we go and as we continue to read through Mark, you'll know what we're doing. So keep your eye open for those things. Verse 20. Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again. Just a reminder, the crowds are not good things in Mark, usually. Right? Crowds are bad. They've been interfering with, they're entertained by Jesus. They think he's like a little circus monkey and doing tricks. And they're like, hey, do more tricks for us, Jesus. And then over time, the crowds get more and more hostile. In fact, what we, what we looked at last week, they were, they were kind of getting a mob mentality. The crowds were going to crush him. And in this case, the crowds are actually keeping him from eating, right? So the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the crowds are all there, and his family, Jesus' family, heard about it. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his 
mind. Okay, Jesus' own family are coming. They're like, oh man, Jesus is at it again. The crowds are gathering. We've got to go stop him. He's going to embarrass us. You know, how often do you think of Jesus as like Uncle Eddie? You know Uncle Eddie from a National Lampoon's Christmas Bay Cason, Uncle Eddie, he's got a turtleneck and white sweater and, you know, hey, the neck for me, Clark, you know, if you, anyone, um, great movie, by the way, you can watch it all, all year long, but Uncle Eddie is like, every family's got one, right, he's kind of like the jokester, the one that you're like, man, this guy, what is he doing, like, he's going to embarrass us again at the party, how often when we think about Jesus and his relationship with his own family, do we think of Jesus as Uncle Eddie? As like kind of the, the weird one in the family. Well, that's how his own family thinks of him. They're like, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. And again, we, we might think of him in that way, right? We think of Uncle Eddie, no harm, no foul. But in our cultural understanding of families, we get it a little wrong. Okay, Here in the West, in the 21st century, we tend to have families that live all over the place, and we, everyone has an Uncle Eddie, everyone has kind of a, you know, jo- like, jokester, you know, that you're like, whatever, you kind of have to tolerate him. Well, in this time, in the ancient Near East, families were everything. Okay, we have a really individualized culture, but family and community meant absolutely everything for a group of people. Okay, a community, a city took pride. Okay, we just talked about the, the family of Safford School and how we love to partner with them and to help instill pride in this community and, and to help give hope to these students and, and, and teachers. And that's a good thing. We're restoring the importance of community. Well, on an even deeper level, the importance of family had so much to do with the way these people lived. If someone in your family was, 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 was um, misrepresenting or disrespecting your family, it was a serious charge. Okay, I don't know if you remember when the Boston Marathon bombing took place. I don't know if you remember that, if you watched any of the news coverage. But the primary person that they interviewed throughout that time was the uncle of the two boys, the two suspects, the, the two guys that that teamed together and that, and that had this horrible you know, terrorist act and this bomb went off and, and, and they're interviewing all these people and they found out the most important person to interview was the uncle, right? It was their closest relative to them. They weren't able to get a hold of these boys' family, so they interviewed the uncle. And I remember kind of being surprised. Like the first time the uncle got on and they gave him the microphone and he looked into the camera and he gave an impassioned plea and he said, you boys, your father would not approve of this. You are misrepresenting our family name. This is not, and I can't pronounce their you know, family name, but he was like, this is not what our family does. And he was calling out to them and you started to see, wow, they, you know, they, he was kind of owning, he felt responsible because these guys were a part of their family. Well, similarly here, Jesus' family had one understanding for the way that God's kingdom would look and the way it looked to, to be a follower of God and to be a person of God. And they're like, Jesus is crazy. Right? The author makes it clear. No, no, no. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is authoritatively showing himself and calling for us to follow him in faith and in repentance 
and even his own family members don't get it. So are they true followers of his? They're as close to him as anyone could be. They have the same blood as him. It's a Christian family, right? Just by the way, the last name Christ is not his last name. It's a title, king. He's not like Jesus Christ and, you know, there's this guy over here. And, you know, it's not a last name. It's a title. And the word Christian was actually used negatively at first. And it was, a, it was actually used as a, a little Christ or, or a Christian was someone who followed Christ. Well, his own family members would not consider themselves to be Christian. They think he's crazy. They're like, let's go stop him. He's out of his mind before he misrepresents himself, before he misrepresents our family. And then going on here, picking up in this longer section, kind of the meat, if you will. I love peanut butter and banana or whatever it is that you like between two slices of bread. Um, he, uh, Elvis, liked that too, by the way. Sorry, I'm out of my mind here right now. Um, so the, the meat of the sandwich here is a longer section where um, even the religious authorities, okay, the people, so his own family don't get who he is. They're false followers of Jesus, and then the religious authorities who time and time again should get it. They should understand who Jesus is, but they don't. So pick up with me in verse 22, and I'll just kind of read and explain, read and explain. Okay, that's how we're going to walk through this. In verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, okay, so that's a key. All the other scribes, all the other religious authorities that he's been interacting with are from his, like, local area. Okay, his kind of local representatives. But now the big guns come from Jerusalem. Right? So the big guns, the kind of the big ones from the capital, the holy city of Jerusalem, they come. They're like, we're gonna come and check this thing out. And they say, He is possessed by Beelzebul. That means the prince of the demons, or the head of the demons. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so just to be clear what they're saying, all right, they're not questioning Jesus's authority. All right, I just want to say this quickly because we have a lot to cover. But they're not saying uh, Jesus is crazy, lunatic. He's not. No, they're recognizing Jesus has been performing miracles. He has been healing people. He has been speaking with authority. And we learned that word authority means author. He has been coming. So they're not questioning his authority. All right, they're not saying this guy has no authority. No, they recognize his authority, but they question the source of it. They're like, Jesus, you're, you're possessed by the devil. You say you're here to wipe out the kingdom of darkness, to bring in the kingdom of God, but you're doing all this actually through the kingdom of darkness. And let me ask you, okay, as we look at Jesus here in a second, how do you respond when people get details wrong? Are, are you like a truth person? I, I am. Okay, if somebody quotes like a movie and gets even one line wrong, I feel it's my right and my, my call to be like, no, 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 that's not quite right. Or if you like sports or if you like music and somebody quotes something, even if they get the gist of it right, even if they said, yeah, yeah, Arizona beat ASU, but it was, you know, 29 to, you know, 28, you feel, no, you're like, no, 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 we killed them. It wasn't a one point. It was, we annihilated them, actually. We first played from scrimmage. They fumbled and we scored on it, and, right? Uh, ASU, U of A, you know, or any other example that you'd want to use, but 
Right? You, you feel a need to correct when something's been wrong. And sometimes you even kind of lose your mind in it. You, you, you just respond to the wrong accusation or the wrong information. And you want to just make sure you get it right. But what does Jesus do? These people say, you're not God the Son. You're not even someone who's doing good. You're, you're demonic. Remember, Jesus is the creator of all things, through whom and for whom all things are made. He's almighty God who chose to humble himself to come as a human, but still fully God and fully man. So how much more? It's not a sports score. It's not a, a, a misquote of a movie. They're questioning his identity and his goodness and his work. And how does he respond? It just says very kind of matter-of-factly in verse 23. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And then he goes on in the next part. He basically uses calm logic to expose their lack of logic, to expose their broken logic. He's so cool. He's so calm. These guys just called him... A a minion, a puppet of Satan, the enemy of God. And Jesus very calmly unravels their argument. Isn't he amazing? Let me just just pause and ask, do you love Jesus? Do you see how incredible he is? His whole purpose, all the way to the point of dying on the cross and victoriously raising from the dead, what we see is time and time again, he is pronouncing the good news that pain and suffering and brokenness in the world is coming to an end, that he has come, Almighty God, to make new what has been broken, and he's calling people to follow him. He's calling his own family. He's calling people. He's calling social outcasts. He's calling all people to respond to his good news and to follow him. And time and time again, he faces opposition. And people like you and me, people like his own family, take him for granted. They take him lightly. They say, oh, no, 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 you've got this wrong. Uh, Yeah, maybe I'll call myself one of your followers, but not when you're doing crazy stuff. I'm not. And he just calmly continues to bring in his good news and to call people to follow him. He's not rattled. He's not shaken. Again, Do you love him? Are you captivated by him? Do you see his cool demeanor? It's amazing. He's bringing in his kingdom. And it's a stark contrast to all other kingdoms. He's calling you and me to follow him. And it's a stark contrast to following anyone else or anything else. And then again here, now I want to pick up in verse 28 because this is Um, a really important part of Scripture that maybe you've read before, maybe even when Chris read through this long Scripture, perhaps you read this and you were a little bit confused. So I'm going to just read it and we're going to talk about it for a bit here. In verse 28, and then these are the words of Jesus here again. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And this one, verse 29. But whoever blasphemies or blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. 
The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The one place that we're told it is an unforgivable sin. Let me ask, not to shake, just because I'm interested. How many of you have ever been confused by that verse before? Have ever read that and just kind of wondered? See a lot of people. Okay, perhaps if you grew up in a, in a Christian home or a churchy environment or a church camp or something, you heard about this, okay? Perhaps you were like eight years old and m- maybe like me, you'd used the Lord's name in vain before, right? You say, you know, Gene. Or you, you know, you got mad. You hit your thumb with a hammer, and you got angry at God, or something. Or and and or maybe again, you grew up so much in the church that it became like the like Christian truth or dare kind of deal. And someone's like, "I dare you to say I blaspheme the Holy Spirit." And you know, it's the one unforgivable sin. And when you were like eight years old, you said it. Okay, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then and that, and maybe I mean, it's we're kind of joking, but maybe you've lived with kind of anxiety. You've wondered. Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I committed this unforgivable sin? What does it mean to do that? Well, let me just say first and foremost, okay, because we want to be honest with ourselves every time. This is a really hard passage, and I don't have the absolute authoritative, here it is, this is what it means, okay? There are a lot of really godly, really smart people who kind of even disagree on the nuances of what this means. But the, the absolute, the main point of this, let me just be clear, everyone agrees on. It's very clear what the main point is, okay? And I'll just say that again. The main point is to reveal what it means to be a true or a false follower of Jesus. Okay, that's the main point. And, and, and God's making that abundantly clear here through His Word. But this part still, the specific nature of to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there's some different ideas. And so let me, just, let me just walk through or address two of them. Okay, the first one, the first idea that some would say, um, they would say, well, this was a specific context happening right here. And so what these people are doing is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's to physically, in that exact time, see Jesus doing His works and ushering in His kingdom. It's to see these miracles and say, no, Jesus, those are not driven by God the Holy Spirit. Those are not the works of God. Instead, those are demonic. And in that case, these people are specifically committing, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The word blasphemy, just so you know, means to defame or tear down the name of God. And so some would say, no, no, you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit at all today. Since Jesus um, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, you can no longer actually do that because you had to be physically present with him physically and actually say those works are not from God those works are from Satan that's what some would say and it seems to make sense because verse 20 um, no verse 30 specifically says for they had said he has an unclean spirit okay so that makes sense but I personally don't think that's what it's saying I personally think it's a more broad idea of resisting the call of of God the Holy Spirit to respond in faith to the forgiveness of God. I think personally that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a more broad term that it is to basically misunderstand and misrespond um, to Jesus and say, uh, that's not good news, I'm going to do this. It's to, let me put it this way, it's to have a heart disposition 
that is either offended by or apathetic to the grace of God. Okay, the grace of God means the undeserved favor, the undeserved acceptance and favor of God. And so to blaspheme God is to say, I reject that. Either I'm offended by that, I don't think I need your grace, I don't think I need your undeserved favor through my own effort, my own good works, I can do it on my own, or it's to just be apathetic to it, and to be like these people, to be like, ah, Jesus, I don't know, I guess I'm a follower of yours, but you're kind of weird, again, going back to his own family, or like these religious authorities, to, to try to find an angle, okay? Can you relate with that? Is that any of, of our Christian walk? Do you find yourself trying to find an angle, trying to find a justification for why not to follow God, for why not to obey His call, for why to find some subtle nuance, a way to reject Jesus, a way to reject the the call of Jesus and His Lordship in every facet of life? Because again, that's the main point, is He's calling you to be a true disciple, a true follower. And the only other option is to be a false disciple, a false follower. And so like these people, they thought that sin and judgment had to do with some people. Some people need this. Yeah, Jesus, you're here to kind of call some people, some sinners, you know, the crazy people, the, you know, the murderers. Again, we've talked about this before. If, if your answer is, I'm a pretty good person, I've never killed anyone, then I would just say, congratulations on not being a murderer, right? So God's going to accept you because you've never killed anyone. Because you're a pretty good person. Because I grew up in a Christian family. Because I grew up in a part of the country or in a particular cultural context where, yeah, I'm a Christian. I check that box. But listen to me, the main point here is that the cross of Jesus is the great equalizer. It's the ultimate equalizer. So that the people who would be reading this, these people, his own family... Or the religious authorities would come and be like, Jesus, we don't really need to fully submit to you. We don't really, you don't really need to die on the cross. We don't really, you know, sin and judgment, that's for some people. I'm one of the 77%. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm from the South. I'm from this particular family. My dad's a pastor. I grew up around church. I was born in church. I don't really know what that means. Thankfully, no one's been actually born here. But right, like this idea, we think that. But no, the cross of Jesus humbles the lofty. The people like here who think, ah, I've got it pretty well figured out. Who think I don't need that. No, Jesus, God the Son came and hung on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. And so if you're lofty, if you're high, if you think that's for some other people, if you take lightly the call of Jesus to truly follow Him, look to the cross. He had to die for you so that you could have life. So if we tend to approach Jesus and reject Him kind of haphazardly, just with a mediocre flippancy, hopefully the cross shakes you out of that. It rattles you out of your apathy. And you consider, no, Jesus had to die so that you could have life. But on the flip side, 
Perhaps some are here, and when I ask that question, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? Would you identify yourself that way? Perhaps you're like some members of my own family who would say, no, I kind of, I hope I could be, I wish, but there's no way God could forgive me. When I say, are you a true follower of Jesus or a false disciple? Be like, well, I'm a false disciple because you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what kind of things I've committed and what I've done in my life before. Well, the cross elevates. The cross humbles the lofty and lifts up the broken. The good news is that God loves you so much that while you are yet a sinner, while you are indeed a false disciple, you and I are naturally enemies of God because from the very beginning we have individually and corporately turned our backs on God and said, we don't need you, we don't need your grace, we don't need your authority, we don't need your life, we don't need to be true followers of you in every aspect of our lives. We have turned ourselves away And God said, I love you so much that while you're yet sinners in that state, Christ died for you. So that by placing your faith in him, you can be restored to life. Every facet of life, following him, restored in your relationship, accepted by Almighty God who we have naturally offended and sinned against. Again, the cross is the great equalizer. It humbles the lofty and lifts up the rejected so that you should be either brought low and rattled from your complacency and yet encouraged and stilled in your anxiety. Because by responding to Jesus and his work, you can become a follower, a true follower. So my question again as we get into the last element of the sandwich, the last little slice of bread is, are you a true follower? Are you looking for an angle? Are you looking for a way to not fully surrender to Jesus and fully have your life defined by his life, death, and resurrection? So again, we come back to his family, picking up in verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Again, this is his family. This is his mother, Mary, and his brothers. His family, and they're there together, and they call out to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, "Uh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my brother and my mother? Who are my mother and my brothers? And they're like, They're outside, we just said. And looking around at those who sat around, Jesus said this, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, this might be offensive to us. Some of us are like, wow, he just disrespected his own mom, his own family. What he's doing here is not trying to disrespect or tear down the incredible importance of family. Okay, We talked about that in the first one. Community, family is a really good thing created by God, created for our good and to reflect God's glory and how we relate to one another in family. What Jesus is doing here is not taking down the importance of family. What he's doing is he's elevating what it means to be one of his true followers. Again, how do you think of your Christianity? Is it something you just check on a box Is it something you're like, yeah, I guess culturally I'm a Christian. 
I'm from wherever, my family, my dad was a pastor, I grew up here, I was born in the church, whatever it is, and yeah, I'm a Christian, is that what you think about it? Because Jesus is coming to blow that up, to rattle us, and show that's really not an option. You can't just be a neutral, apathetic follower of Jesus, but to be a follower of Jesus is not just to be something, it's not just to be a statistic, it's not just a cultural identity. It means that though you and I are naturally enemies of God, through faith in Jesus, we are adopted into His family. It means your whole life is now shaped. It means you get a new last name. You get a new identity. You get a new purpose. I know some people in this room who have adopted children. And I know some people here who are adopted themselves. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to have a relationship with God the Father. You're not a second-class child. You're not a, you're not, there's not an asterisk next to your last name. You are now a part of the family. You share in the inheritance. You share in the love. You share in the seat at the table. You're a part of the family. So what Jesus is saying here, the main point, is no, no, no. You can't just be an apathetic follower of me. That is selling it too short. That's selling it too short for you. You can't settle for just a cultural Christianity. You can't settle to just be a part of a statistic. No, no, no. He's calling you to follow him in truth, in life, in faith, in repentance, in all of life. And when you do that, you're now a son or a daughter of Almighty God. You're now a brother or sister of Christ. You're now a part of his family. So as we close, as we end this time, I want to ask you, are you a Christian? Not just a statistic. Are you truly, genuinely a follower of Jesus? And what does that mean for you? Is your answer to that, yeah, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. And now let let me be abundantly clear here, okay? Don't ever be ashamed of a boring testimony, okay? If you're like, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home and I have personally put my faith in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but sorry, I didn't, you know, I'm not a murderer, I didn't spend time in jail, I'm not a drug dealer, you know, I'm from whatever, like, you know, Awatuki, you know, or some like, I'm from the suburbs, sorry, it's, don't be ashamed of that, right? I pray that my children have really boring testimonies, okay? My older three children, you may have seen here maybe last month, they were baptized. They've put their faith, they've indicated that they have believed in their heart and confessed with their mouths that they are followers of Jesus. And they have evidence of that. They, they give of their money, their, their tithes and their offerings. They, they reveal that where their treasure is, their heart is there also. And they pray for one another. And when they, when they fight and squabble and we call them to repent, they do. And they ask for forgiveness and they love each other and all these things. That's good, right? Hopefully they have a really boring testimony. They'll wake up one day and someone will ask them, are you a Christian? They'll be like, yes, yes I am. And they'll say, well, when did you pray to receive Christ? And as far as I know, they'll be like, I don't really know. I don't know when it was. At some point around this time of life, you know, my heart was renewed. I got a new heart and I was born again. And that's boring. But listen to me. If their answer is, yeah, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. My dad's a pastor. Oh, that would be tragic. That's false discipleship. 
So I'm asking you again, are you a real follower of Jesus? Is the answer to that question just related to your family affiliation or your cultural affiliation? Or is it evidenced by a new heart? Because a true follower of Jesus delights in all of his work, delights in having life defined by the cross, delights in submitting to the will of the Father in every facet of life. So now as we close, as we always do, I want to ask, how do you respond? We're going to have some people over here to pray together. I I pray that we would be a praying church, that we would pray for one another. If you've never truly trusted Jesus, perhaps you're here and you're recognizing maybe for the first time, yeah, I am a false disciple. I'm not saying that to shame you, but hopefully to wake you up to the good news that Jesus is calling you to be a true follower, to be a part of his true family. And if not, okay, we don't just have people over here to pray just for that, but if you want to pray, I think all of us in some degree or or another have chosen to walk contrary to the lordship of Jesus in some capacity. And so if you just want to be prayed for and whatever it might be, but if you want to be prayed for, for and, and pray that you would be reminded that every facet of your life would indeed be shaped by the cross of Jesus and that you would live and walk day in and day out as a true disciple, as a true follower of Jesus, then let's pray together. So for all of us now, let's pray and respond in worship and singing and in prayer and in communion. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough, Lord, to call us, to, to shake us out of apathetic American cultural Christianity. Lord, thank you that um, we can come here week in and week out and come before your word and know that we will both be humbled, brought low, convicted, and encouraged, lifted up, raised up by the good news and the a harsh reality that because of our sin, we needed Jesus to die on the cross. But because of the cross, we can call you Father. We can interact with one another as brother and sister. So Lord, I pray now that we will rightly respond in faith and in worship and in prayer as your children together, as true disciples, as true followers of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.